0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.
1: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program...
2: This virus is spreading at such a rapid pace that we have had trouble keeping up with it.
1: Nearly two years of the coronavirus. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Carlos Del Rio on what science has learned and what's still a mystery. Plus, from vaccines to boosters, we'll talk about getting through the holidays without another surge. That conversation is straight ahead, but first this. A memorial for the missing and murdered children of the Atlanta child murders is unveiled. I've said on multiple occasions that lives of these children and young people mattered then, they matter now. And uh, with this memorial, it will be a reminder to each of us uh, that their lives will matter forevermore. Today, a groundbreaking ceremony took place. Eventually, an eternal flame, along with the names of victims who have been identified by a special task force, will be created. We'll bring you a little bit more from today's ceremony later in the program. In other news, the head of Atlanta Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says there's early evidence the Omicron variant of the coronavirus is more transmissible than the Delta strain. Dr. Rochelle Walensky says cases caused by the Omicron are doubling about every two days.
2: It means that it is vital for everyone to get vaccinated and boosted if they are eligible. Given the increase in transmissibility, this also means continuing to be vigilant about masking in public indoor settings in areas of substantial or high community transmission.
1: As That's pretty much the entire country. She says most infections in the U.S. are still caused by the Delta variant, but some parts of the country, like New York City, are seeing higher levels, of Omicron cases. And a programming note, Dr. Walensky will be a guest on this program next Monday. And finally, there's a new resource in Atlanta for those who speak with a stutter. The Center for Stuttering Education and Research bears the name of Arthur Blank, owner, of course, of the Atlanta United and the Atlanta Falcons. Mr. Blank is donating more than $12 million to establish a facility. Blank, who overcame a childhood stutter, says more needs to be done to normalize treatment for the condition. This is Closer Look.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
1: You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. And you're listening to Closer Look, coming from Atlanta 90.1 WABE. Let's go back, February 7th, 2020. Here's how this program started The World Health Organization. Yes, they're declaring this current coronavirus outbreak as, quote, a global public health emergency of international concern, close quote. And as of airtime, it's estimated more than 31,000 cases of this virus have been confirmed worldwide, mostly in China, and total confirmed cases of the virus have more than tripled since last week. Wow. Then a month later, on March 14th, 2020, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, after two confirmed COVID-19 cases, declares a public health state of emergency.
2: In the days and weeks ahead, we must remain supportive of one another. Be mindful of potential exposure, use best practices to prevent infection, and certainly pray for our fellow Americans.
1: Mm. And now on this date, December 15th, 2021, the nation reaches 800,000-plus COVID-19 deaths here in Georgia, According to the State Department of Health, 25,990 have died due to the virus and just under 1.3 million reported infections here in our state. It's been nearly two years, obviously, of the coronavirus. Here's some questions. What has science learned about this virus, and what's still a mystery? Also, right now, we're all talking about vaccines and boosters, and now concerns about getting through the holidays without another surge. Well, closer looks first Guess way back in February of 2020, was infectious disease specialist from Emory University. You all know him, Dr. Carlos Del Rio. He's also professor of global health in the Department of Global Health and professor of epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health. Dr. Del Rio, thank you so much for taking the time. We have had so many conversations about this nearly for two years now.
2: Oh, that's right, Ross. You know, Rose, we used to just get together and talk about HIV, but now it seems like COVID is our new thing, right?
1: Before we assess where we are as a nation and how we got here, and there is some some bit of a breaking news of the day related to the coronavirus. Earlier today, Dr. Carlos Del the White House, held its weekly COVID-19 media briefing. And of course, the Omicron variant has been the focal point of all of this. Now, here's what Dr. Anthony Fauci talked about in terms of the two-shot vaccines versus the booster. Our booster vaccine regimens work against Omicron. At this point, there is no need
3: for a variant-specific booster. And so the message remains clear. If you are unvaccinated, get vaccinated. And particularly in the arena of Omicron, if you are fully vaccinated, get your booster shot.
1: So, Dr. Darío, if you can share, what is it about the booster that will give extra protection? If you can kind of break that down for folks. I mean, I know scientists and academics, y'all love to speak in your own language, but break that down for us as common folk here
2: but what happens when you get a a booster vaccine you know we have learned this vaccines give you a certain level of protection and we measure protection in two ways we measure it with antibodies which we call the humoral immunity mm-hmm. and we measure it with something called t cells which is the cellular immunity most of the assays are looking for a for to the to the humoral immunity in other words your ability to produce antibodies and we know that over time uh, some of those antibodies uh, start to go uh, to go away. We call that waning of immunity. And again, to almost every vaccine, you have waning of immunity. But in this case, you've had two things happen simultaneously, the waning of immunity, but also changes in the virus. So we, the, virus, the vaccine was originally designed for a specific virus, type of virus, i.e. Mm-hmm. The, the original strain, the, and then the alpha strain. But then the, the virus mutated to the so-called delta strain. And when the virus mutates, the so-called de- Delta strain, it becomes a, a different sort of a diff- different beast. And what we know over time is that that you are less likely to be to be uh, your level of protection. Uh, let's say with any vaccines, to the over time uh, to the to the Delta virus goes to about go, goes down to about sixty percent. Mm-hmm. Once you receive a booster, when you what you boost when you you remind your immune system. Of the virus, and you get this very, you know, a very prolific response. You get a very exacerbated response, and your immune system really kicks up. We call that an amnesic response. Your immune system remembers it and sort of kicks it up into into the high gear. <clears throat> and if you do that against the Delta strain, all of a sudden you get to about 95 level of protection. With Omicron, just two shots gets you only about 30 to 35 percent protection. If you get boosted, you get to about 75% level of protection. Mm-hmm. So it's again, it's not great, but 75% against Omicron is pretty good. So the protection, the boosting that we currently are can give people gives you a, a significant level of protection. The issues that we have, Rose, are, are two are, are threefold. Number one, we've done, you know, it's almost a year and a day that we, we were able to vaccinate. We started the vaccination campaign in our country. Um, and since then, more than 200 million Americans have been fully vaccinated, mm-hmm. which is about 60% of the population. That means there's about 40% of the population that hasn't been vaccinated, and there's also only about 20, about 54 million Americans, which is about 26% of the population that has been boosted. So you know, 40% not vaccinated, only 20, 26% boosted, and then there's uh, certain people that have been vaccinated that haven't been vaccinated say, well, I haven't vaccinated because I've had the infection. I have natural immunity, I'm protected. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Well, what we've learned is that against the Omicron variant, natural immunity doesn't protect you. Prior infection does not protect you. So those 40% of the US population that haven't been vaccinated are essentially at risk of getting Omicron. Now, the good news and what we learn also is you had COVID before and you get a vaccine, or if you got the vaccine and then after vaccination you got COVID, what we call a breakthrough infection, mm-hmm. now you have what we call super immunity. Those people that had COVID and a vaccine have the best level of immunity. They have what's called super immunity, And those people, in fact, are the most protected individuals. So if you had COVID before and you haven't been vaccinated up to now because you were hoping and you were trusting your natural immunity, I would say trust no more and get at least one dose of vaccine.
1: Dr. Dario, I have a a question from a listener here who's listening with her. Uh, looks like her, her daughter who's in seventh grade, and she says, "My daughter wants to know. Can you explain why the virus keeps mutating? Is that something that's common?" Her daughter wants to know, and I love the fact that we got the seventh graders asking questions here. You
2: know, that's a, that's a really important question, and that seventh grader must be majoring majoring in science. I think you're absolutely so. Right, viruses. <clears throat> any viruses, it changes. Viruses mutate. And the viruses mutate because as they're reproducing, they produce errors. And some viruses do it more than others. The RNA viruses uh, tend to do this a lot more. We know the HIV virus does it. Uh, We know other viruses. it. respiratory viruses, like influenza virus, another RNA virus does this. And it does it in a very, now we understand in a very predictable way. But this is the reason why with influenza, you got to get a different vaccine every year because the virus mutates sufficiently (laughs) that the vaccine you got the year before doesn't work this, this year. In, in COVID, what we're seeing is these mutations occur really rapidly. And some of the mutations uh, are don't do anything, but some of those mutations lead to what we call variants of concern. And the WHO calls it a variant of concern when there's increased transmissibility, mm-hmm. when there's uh, either increased transmissibility, increased severity of disease, or what we call immune evasiveness. And so far, we've had uh, five variants of concerns, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and now Omicron. In the U.S. right now, uh, uh, Rose, I'm afraid that we are going to be fighting a dual battle. Delta hasn't gone away, and Omicron is coming here. When when Omicron got to South Africa, they were almost at no cases. Delta had pretty much gone, so they started just having Omicron. Right now in the U.S., we're having throughout the country a major, major increase in cases from the from the, uh uh, from the alpha variant, from the de- delta variant mm-hmm. you know we're seeing a huge spike in cases in our country in, in places you know we're seeing a, you know over 100,000 cases a day in the US we're seeing you know over 1000 deaths we're seeing many parts in the north and northeastern united states having major surges so I worry that as a country, we're going to be fighting uh, Delta and Omicron at the same time.
1: So let me ask you this, and I hope this is not a, a silly question. Is the Omicron variant more deadly, deadlier, obviously, if you have not been vaccinated? Or is it just more deadly in general, if if, if anyone gets it? And I hope that, that makes sense. If not, I apologize. Well,
2: that's a great question, Rose. And, and there's no such thing as a stupid question. So, you know, questions are always important. Uh, there are three things, as I said. Is it more transmissible? The data suggests, without doubt, that it's clearly more transmissible. The, uh, the Omicron uh, variant appears to be uh, significantly more transmissible about, you know, cases are doubling every two to three days. So there, there appears to be, you know, in household context, about threefold higher transmission than Delta. The way the cases are going up so quickly suggests a really, really high transmission rate. Now, the good news is that we know how to reduce transmission, right? We know masking uh especially a medical grade mask social distancing ventilation air filtering all those things work to decrease transmission um mm-hmm. does it does it cause a more severe disease well what we know so far is that it doesn't uh in south africa despite having a huge increase in cases they're seeing less hospitalizations and the cases appear to be mostly mild but having said that as you have much many more and more cases even If Even if it's less severe, the absolute number of cases, the absolute number of hospitalizations is going to be high because, you know, simply you have the numbers. It's a numbers game. Mm -hmm. So less severe, but if you have a lot of cases, you still have a lot of hospitalizations. And the other thing is, does their vaccines protect us? And as I said before, the the vaccines protect us uh, 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 very little uh, if you're vaccinated with two doses, uh, you essentially have about a 35 percent protection. If you get boosted, you get that protection up to about 75 and, percent. Mm-hmm. And prior infection, I want to emphasize, offers no protections against against uh, mm. against Omicron.
1: If you just joined us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Carlos Del Rio. Of course, you've all heard him, not just on this program, but nationwide, globally. He is, a, he is in the Department of Global Health, a professor of epidemiology at the Rowland School of Public Health, of course with Emory University. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, I like saying that because I love your name. But Dr. Del Rio, I remember more than a year ago when I asked you what was complex about this virus and you gave an answer. And I want to ask you, you know, nearly two years later, what still is complexing for you or mysterious about this virus?
2: Oh, I think Rose's virus is 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 a virus that has humbled all of us as scientists mm. because it has been incredibly difficult to predict. It has been incredibly difficult to control. And I think there's there are a couple of things that are unpredictable. Number one is the virus. Number two is 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 the is the population response, the human response, right? Um and number three has been the government response. Mm-hmm. I think we have seen all sorts of different responses from from, so in the combination of those things, how the virus behaves, how humans behave, and how governments behave, dictates what's happening to this virus. And I would say that we don't have this under control. I mean, globally, we have still a major epidemic. And if we don't get, you know, vaccination globally, if we don't start really taking seriously how do we control the epidemic globally, we're going to continue having, uh, you know, variants come to our country. We're going to continue fighting variants. Uh, locally, and I feel like we're we're fighting the wars here instead of going to where we need to, which is fighting the wars where you know where they're happening. And globally, we're seeing a, a dramatic increase in cases. So this is not a time to to drop the guard. This is really a time to to say how do we assume a global leadership in controlling this pandemic? And unfortunately, I have not seen that yet uh, in, a, in a in a real way from our government.
1: This is something that. Is it impacting the entire globe, obviously? But when you talk about trying to get everyone on board, I mean, listen, all nations can't even get on board about climate change, and that's a whole other conversation. So now we're asking folks to all come together. In terms of how we fight this virus, you're up against some nations where there's are still just like here in this country. There's there's still vaccine hesitancy. You're up against how do we get the vaccine to those nations that are all, already that have infrastructure barriers as it relates to being able to even house the vaccine. Then you're up against with some of the the. The pharmaceutical makers say, look, you know, we just don't want to give the vaccine. We want to make sure that our patent is protected and all of this. There's all these tentacles tied to it. When, as you say, at the end of the day, it's really how do we approach this from a global standpoint? And that's that's obviously above me and and maybe even above someone like you, because it's the the leaders of these nations that have to agree.
2: I I don't disagree, Rose. But again, I I want to put the example of what happened with what a program that we now call PEPPAR, right? when President George W. Bush uh, launched PEPFAR, many people say, how are we gonna be able to to get, you know, antiretroviral therapy to people in Africa? They don't even have refrigerators. They don't have, the director of USAID said they don't have watches, so they're not, they can't tell the time to know when to take their medication. And PEPFAR has been an incredible success, and it has been an incredible success because government, you know, uh, uh, funders like the Melinda Gates Foundation and the Clinton Foundation and, and community and pharmacy, pharmaceuticals and scientists, everybody came together, and this is one of the most successful public health programs in the world. We've been able to get the treatment uh, down to a literally a, a very small cost. You know, now you can treat somebody with about a dollar a day mm-hmm. with, with highly effective therapy, and millions of lives have been have been saved as a result of the PEPFAR program. So we have been able to do this before. It's not easy, but it's not impossible. And leadership is about doing the hard things.
1: Are you still surprised? I may know the answer to this that even still, let's come back to our nation, that there's still a lot of vaccine hesitancy because of misinformation, or folks just have some concerns because they say, oh, the vaccine, it's the same familiar narrative that we've been hearing. Well, they created the vaccine too fast, or we don't know, and you know again, Uncle Bob or somebody down the street telling you something that they heard at the gym and Uncle Bob does not have anybody's epidemiology degree on his wall, but people listen to Uncle Bob. We're still fighting that.
2: We are, Rose, and, and there's a lot of, of, of reasons for, for this. Uh, one is, is mistrust of the system. Mm-hmm. You know, in, I was talking to a colleague in South Africa, and South Africa is not, they have a similar problem to ours. It's not lack of vaccines. It's enormous mistrust. And you know who is the mistrust among the the African community, right? The the black community. Why? Because of many many years of abuse by the government and and racism, many of the things that we experience in our country. So there's mistrust, but there's also misinformation. And misinformation actually is now one of our biggest problems in combating this virus. And it's it's the enemy that that has it has been more difficult to control. And unfortunately, misinformation is is something that that we don't really know how to deal with from a public health standpoint and Mm -hmm. from other standpoints. And what I tell people is that we need to take misinformation in a very scientific way and we need to address it in a very, very professional way. Number one, we need to take it head on. We cannot continue just saying, oh, you know, this this may be true. We need to say this is a lie and you're spreading lies and lies hurt people. Number two, I think we need to have a way to to control and to to say, this is misinformation, right? Mm -hmm. Be able to to light it up. The other day I heard in in NPR about a program in in some schools that they're now teaching kids uh, how to to analyze websites to know if this is misinformation or not. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things we're gonna have to teach uh, kids and we're gonna have to teach people in public health is how to decode misinformation and how to understand what misinformation is about, and how do we combat misinformation. But misinformation is not just a problem locally, it's a problem globally, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing people throughout the world uh, uh, be inundated by misinformation. Some of the most amazing amount of misinformation is actually coming from Eastern Europe.
1: Hmm. As we begin to wrap up, you know, I've asked you about, obviously, the the, the continuing challenges and the problems, but I want to be able to end on with some some good news. Well, first of all, congratulations on your Phoenix Award from the city of Atlanta.
2: Oh, thank you, Rose. That was a very special moment. And I, again, has been a, a, a real honor to be able to work from the beginning of this with, with the mayor, with Mayor Atlantis Bottoms, with her team, and with many of our city lead, leaders. I, I say that, you know, uh, leadership is about about making decisions. And great leadership is about making the right decisions. And I think we have had in our city some great leaders that have made the right decisions throughout this pandemic.
1: And also, Dr. Del Rio, I want to give an opportunity just to really focus on those on the front lines, whether they are first responders, whether nurses, physicians, everyone. Um, I remember a story just even about a staff at a senior facility that's, that stayed with they stayed overnight, stayed with their residents so they would make sure they had what they needed. They didn't want to leave them. So many people have given so much since all this began, and I just wanted you to reflect on what folks like you and all those in the healthcare field, what they've been doing. And, and some not lots, lots have lost their lives and given up their own personal sacrifice to make sure that folks like me and everybody else, are healthy, or are trying to keep us healthy.
2: You know, Joyce, uh, it's been uh, it's been really uh, humbling to see, uh, and, and, and really an honor to work with healthcare workers like the ones we have. Uh, people have been working incredibly hard. They're still there, and uh, <clears throat> you know, when we look back at, at this pandemic, I think we're going to say, you know, it was those people that, at the time of crisis, stayed home and didn't go anywhere and stayed at their job and took care of sick people that are gonna be the most the, the, the ones we're gonna to have to praise. I would say, talking to my colleagues in health, what we ask everybody is to get vaccinated. Mm. We, we we don't want your applause, we don't want your thank you. We want you to get vaccinated. And you asked me to end with, with a happy note. I mean, I, I think a happy note is that we are in a better place than where we are we're in the past. Uh, we have vaccines, we know they work, as Dr. Fauci said. We have masks, we know they work. We have testing, we know testing works and so i think we can we can do certain things and we can get together with our relatives and we can enjoy the holidays but we just have to do it carefully and if we do the right things it's really up to us to end this pandemic so let's all come together and do what we need to do so hopefully we can we can end this pandemic sooner rather than later
1: Ah, i totally agree infectious disease specialist obviously from emory university dr carlos del rio thank you so much for always making time for us i know you get a lot of national invites international But you always make time for WABE and our listeners here. I want to say thank you so much throughout all of this.
2: Thank you, Rose, and and happy holidays.
1: Same to you. And you're tuned to Closer Look. I am Rose Scott. We're going to go back into our Closer Look vault. Last year, in April, Atlanta-based media mogul Tyler Perry, he surprised thousands of seniors in Louisiana and Georgia by paying for their groceries, where Kirk Chase Leacock was an Atlanta, is an Atlanta resident and senior. And when we spoke, he talked about his reaction to the gesture, and there was something else. So I'm going to have Kirk pick up the story.
0: The cashier said, uh, there is an Atlanta Angel donor that has already paid for your bill. And- so I looked around immediately, trying to see well who is this this donor? Where are they? And I thought maybe it was the person in front of me paying it forward or something. And uh, the bagger said, "Oh no, that person's not here. It was Tyler Perry. Your bill is paid for."
1: What was your reaction?
0: It took me a second for it to register. Um, in fact, once she said. Your bill was paid for. I was thinking, OK, am I the, you know, one thousand customer today or the <laughs> balloons going to come down? Did something happen here? Um, and then when the uh, other young lady said it was Tyler Perry, it made perfect sense right then, because it all came together because I happened to have been a few years ago in Walmart mm-hmm. when they found out their layaway had been paid for by Tyler Perry.
1: So it, that immediately came back to mind. Did you look around to see the reactions of fellow shoppers? What was, take us to that moment. What was happening?
0: Well, at that moment, actually, to be honest, what I first thought of was, I knew I should have got that
1: brisket of beef that I put back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the lobster, but, the crab right. legs.
0: wanted that brisket of beef. I wanted that br- beef, brisket. And I thought, no, this is too expensive. I'm not going <laughs> to. But no, I actually just felt, a, re, a warm feeling of gratitude.
1: Mm. And we should note, Kroger confirmed that Tyler Perry indeed purchased groceries for nearly 3,000 senior shoppers at 44 Atlanta Kroger's and also 29 Winn-Dixie stores in the New Orleans area. And Kirk, you share this experience via social media. What's the response been like?
0: I am not really big on social media. I don't, I, I pay attention to what's going on with my friends and family. I rarely post anything um, because I don't think what I have is that important to say. However, once I got home and I realized the depth of emotion that I had felt then over this experience, I felt I had to share it. Because I didn't know whether it was going to go public or not, that Tyler Perry had done this. I didn't know if it was going to be secret. But there's no way for me to thank Tyler Perry in person. But it was important that I let people know the good that he's doing and how far it was reaching.
1: Mm -hmm. And Kirk, you're a flight attendant. And like millions of others in the nation, your job has come to a halt. I want to ask, how are you doing during all of this?
0: You know, it's not affecting me as bad as it is some of my fellow crew members who were struggling even when everything was good. You know, the pay is not that great. Most people that do it do not do it for the pay. You do it for the love of the job. Mm -hmm. So uh, life is a struggle day to day. But now this is unbearable for some people. I've personally i found a way to make it work.
1: Mm -hmm. And,
0: you know, I, I try to do my part to help my fellow crew members.
1: And Kirk, I understand you've been sewing, and tell our listeners what you've been sewing and why.
0: Well, once uh, this this pandemic uh, really took a foothold, the airlines allowed us to wear protective gear. We were allowed to wear masks, which were forbidden. Even gloves were forbidden on the plane. However, by the time they allowed us to wear these masks, they were not available. And we, they just could not be found. So a lot of my crew members, we were all out there totally unprotected. So what I started doing, I, I have sewing skills. I've had a, a clothing company in the past and I just dusted off the machine, went and dug up all the fabric I had, uh, went and bought as much elastic as I could find. And I started making masks for my fellow crew members. Mm. Then walking and, and just giving them away in the airport. Then walking through the airport, I would be stopped by uh, flight attendants from other airlines that would ask me about it. First, I was just giving them out in the airport. And then by word of mouth, it hit social media and I started getting requests from all over.
1: And you are actually paying the postage as you mail these out, correct?
0: Yes, I am. Fortunately, a few people have been... um, paypaling me or cash apping me and by the way this leads back to the whole tyler experience Mm -hmm. that morning i i was feeling a little down about what i was doing and a little underappreciated because people were requesting things but no one was offering to help me out with this this effort however i felt i needed to do it anyway so and, and I was feeling discouraged that morning. And then to go and have someone do something for me anonymously, I thought, you know what? I lost track of why I was doing this in the first place. It had nothing to do with, with recognition. It had everything to do with protecting and supporting my fellow crew members. And if a few of them don't appreciate it, that's that's all right. That that, that that that's not a, a big deal because the ones that do appreciate it mean so much more. But skipping ahead a little bit that afternoon, right after this was just a blessed day mm-hmm. that afternoon, right after the Tyler Perry incident. One of my other friends had asked that was not a crew member, had asked me for a, a mask for his job. And I gave him the mask. He, he picked it up from me and he said, you know what? Give me whatever you have to mail out today. And he took on the cost of the mailings for that day, which was $56. Mm. So I gave him a mask that probably cost me a total of $3 to produce, if that much. But yet he blessed me by paying for all of my mailings that day. So it was just a wonderful day for me from starting off with Tyler Perry and ending up with with that other angel.
1: If Tyler Perry is listening, he better be. Uh, <laughs> what would you like to say to him? Kirk?
0: I would like to say thank you so much for all that you do, for the community, um, for the, you, you are one of those people who have, has never forgotten where he came from. I once heard him do an interview where he was talking about the sign on um, Lankford Parkway when they put up the sign for Tyler Perry Studios, and the next exit is my exit, where mm-hmm. I live, which is Cleveland and Sylvan. And he talked about how that was where he came from. That was where he was when times were really bad. And then the sign right next to it is where he was able to go and what he achieved. That stuck with me. It stuck in my soul. It stuck in my spirit. And I think that if I ever get to the point where I start questioning where I am in life, I will remember those words from him of, where he was and where he ended up that it's just all about determination and putting the right energy out into the universe
1: Hmm. Kirk Chase Leacock thank you so much for sharing your story I really appreciate it stay safe thank you for what you're doing and sewing those masks
0: thank you for having me on
1: now next time get that brisket no I'm just kidding (laughs) 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 That's a beat for my next guest, because he actually has some pretty good control of the mic. This is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. I say much like a hip-hop pioneer, scholar, professor, culture critic, New York Times best-selling author, and apparently told the late prince, man, I can dance, don't get it twisted. Michael Eric Dyson is currently a professor of African-American and Dispar- diaspora studies, along with other titles at Vanderbilt University. His latest is Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America. I'm joined now by the OG, Professor Michael Eric Dyson. Welcome back, brother. Hey, it's great to be here,
3: Sister Rose, always. When I'm <laughs> on your show, I'm on the real show, so I'm glad to be here.
1: Let's begin here. If you were going to have a hype person on stage, who would it be? <laughs> <laughs> Who's your hype <laughs> woman or hype man? Yeah, that's a
3: great point. That's a great point. You know, somebody from my family probably <laughs> up there said, and the next. <laughs> and, and younger people, I've been able to... uh to, to bring along in this game, uh, who have been uh, benefited hopefully by uh, my love and support for them. I got so many young people: uh, James Braxton Peterson, Mark Lamont Hill, Salamisha Tillett, my agent Tanya McKinnon. <laughs> Shoot, you know I get them out. But I don't. I, I think Sister Rose might be up in the spotlight. Let me tell you something. I would be
1: a stage. great hype person. You don't know, boy, <laughs> if I had a beat. Let me tell you. Oh, listen, before we get into entertaining race, I remember the last time we spoke, almost a year to date. And we were talking about where this would where this nation would be now. I'm going to play something. Here's what you said back in December of 2020.
3: We're living through a syndemic and the converged pandemic of race and the converged pandemic of virus often have the same cry after the viral pandemic leaves the lungs spongy with people proclaiming, I can't breathe, Hmm. and police batons, knees, or guns, beating, shooting, and rendering black flesh mute with them claiming, I can't breathe. Both claiming, I can't breathe, both because of a pandemic of race and a pandemic of the virus come to the same conclusion. Hmm.
1: Professor, a year later, as it relates to racial justice and public health justice, your thoughts on this year, 2021?
3: Well, here we are still in the midst of a um, of a syndemic that continues to unfold. Uh, 750,000 and more lives have been taken by the virus. Uh, we've now seen a, a, a kind of whitelash backlash against, uh, you know, reckoning with race. That's why critical race theory is here. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is the controversy about it. And so we see that America will never, you know, silently go, go uh, silently into that night. It will rage against the dying of the light. Uh, And in this case, it feels that its own proprietary interests in American democracy, narrowly defined, uh, is the way uh, to go. And so, you know, beating back on uh, critical race theory, acting like it's being taught in schools, you having an excuse not to uh, talk about black history in these schools. I mean, this is the incredible uh, duplicity of claiming to be for the American dream and undermining it at the same time. So while we we pledge to reckon with race, we got to reckon with the backlash against it, the resistance to it and the wholesale repudiation of the principles of racial justice Uh, that might put us in a better position.
1: Let me get your thoughts on this, because what we've witnessed coming out of last year was this, and depending on whom you ask, you'll get a different answer, this racial and and equity justice movement, corporations, universities, sports leagues, Uh all of a sudden there's this societal shift in pledging to be part of the solution, as opposed to continuing a systemic practice where racism and other isms have been prevalent. What do you make of that movement that everybody, all of a sudden now, and I say everybody, because my grandfather would say that, everybody now wanna do better.
3: Right, well, thank God everybody wants to do better. We all we, we, we for everybody doing better, especially after you know, four years of the Trump administration. We see what happens when people don't wanna do better, when they don't care, when they don't give a flying flip about racial justice or considerations of <clears throat> you know, uh, making things better and advocating for the truth. Uh, There's no question that, um, you know, in this instance, um, you know, we have to continue to uplift uh, the bloodstained banner of truth, ride it high, hold it high, uh, make sure that people see that we are serious about it. Yeah, it's one thing to put a a black square on Instagram. It's another thing to step up uh, in a major fashion to support racial justice It's one thing to say and claim that uh, we are about business and doing serious things. Uh, And another thing to look at your budget and what are you doing in corporate America? And Mm -hmm. who's in the room? Who made the decision to put that commercial out there? How did Kylie Jenner get on that commercial uh, yet again? How did we make a co-commercial like that? What do we do with the Benetton ad, right? Who's in the room? Who's in the room? Uh, to hear about the microaggressions that people of color, especially black people endure, black women endure because of hairstyles or, you know, choosing to do what they do. So all of that has to be taken seriously. So if we're going to do better, everybody wanna do better. We got to do better, which means we got to think more seriously, more strategically, more systemically. And we got to have white people standing up against the people who are white who stand up against racial justice or who questioned it in ways questioning it is not a problem, but, but, but eroded and are cynical about it in a way that bespeaks their own complicity in the very structure of white supremacy. We trying to resist.
1: Let's talk about this latest offering from you, entertaining race. You take the reader through some distinct inter- intersections as it relates to race. Uh, but I, as reading this, and first of all, this is book long, but I read it, got it right here. Um, <laughs> I t- as a reader, I was like, okay, you know what? I think professor Dyson this has been in the works for some time, has it? This is a collection yeah. of of you. This is like, you know how Jay-Z had the blueprint? This right, is kind right, of your blueprint.
3: Right. Oh, bless you for that, my sister. Yeah, it's been a long time in the making. That marketing plan was me. Okay, I had to go back to the blueprint <laughs> of the day. Uh, so, yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, there's some essays in here from almost 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's some stuff that's right recent. Right recent, as the people would say. So the thing is, is that I'm trying to give coverage for a whole range of thought, of evolution, of thinking uh, as I have grappled with this stuff. When I started out, got a Ph.D. Two years later, I was on the cover of, uh, you know, New Yorker magazine with Cornell West and and uh, Bell Hooks and Derek Bell. Mm-hmm. Now I'm now I'm on the bestseller list with ta Coates and Clint Smith. I'm trying. Look, I'm a long distance runner. I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to LeBron James the game. I'm trying to Tom Brady the game. I'm still trying to win chips, even though I'm old. So my point is that uh, I've been out here for a minute thinking and wrestling with these issues. They're new to you. That's great. Uh, You know, I've been dealing with them for a while. We're going to continue to deal with them. We're going to continue to see new faces and new takes on these issues. And uh, I just want to be a participant in it to show that I've been out here for a minute. And I will continue as long as breath is in my body and the Lord lets me live uh, to do what I do.
1: I want to talk about the chapter regarding your fellow Detroit native queen of soul, the late Aretha Franklin. First, Mm -hmm. more than a longtime reader of your work, you all were friends. You spoke at her funeral. In the book, you write, quote, there would be no Shakira, Khan, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey or Beyonce right. without Aretha. As much as her love for her people shines through and all she did, her love and advocacy for black women was even more striking and arguably more necessary. Close quote. Professor, take it further.
3: Yes, ma'am. I mean, Aretha Franklin is the voice. This is there's no um, there's no uh, mystery as to why the Rolling Stone magazine named her. Uh, the greatest voice ever, the number one singer ever, with the greatest song ever, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what it means to me. Now, we know she didn't write that. We know that um, Otis Redding wrote that, yeah. but Otis Redding heard that song, and he, he said, she's supposed to be my friend. She's my friend, man, but that girl <laughs> done took my song. He knew it, and Otis did a cold version of it, yeah. but you ain't doing what that song, what Aretha did with that song, because she transmuted it in a in a, in a very positive way, <clears throat> into a feminist credo as well as a racially prideful you know, theme. And to do that simultaneously, give me my respect when I get home, that's to, that's, that's to the man. Don't act like you don't know who bringing in this dough, son. And at the same time, respect our race, our struggle, who we are as a people to have a feminist and anti-racist song and a prideful Black song that's also prideful of being a woman and then to be able to put it across the way she did uh, is extraordinary. So ain't nobody else with, with, you know, who's a female singer and, and quite as it's kept male singer too, without having the imprint and the influence of the great Aretha Franklin.
1: This performing blackness in America under a much bigger entertaining race and for the listener who may not quite understand why you're making the connection with all these creatives, and I'm going to give you a chance to talk about it because you mentioned another creative genius who happens to be one of my personal favorites, and that is the, the remarkable August Wilson. And you write, August, August Wilson's grand vision is arguably the most sophisticated expression of the black arts Movement's hunger to meld politics and art to marry the pen and the sword, at least through the protest, placard, close quote.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, August Wilson is one of the greats of all time, a Shakespearean writer, you know, uh, Eugene O'Neill, Arthur Miller. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, August Wilson. These are the titans of American theater. Tennessee Williams, uh, people with the capacity and the ability uh, to illuminate the context of our struggle and everyday lives with haunting poetry. This is Chekhov, mm-hmm. you know, at his best. And so, uh, you know, Mr. Wilson was an incredibly prolific and engaged uh, author, playwright, who sought to illuminate uh, for Black life th- the, the decades of the 20th century, every decade in the 20th century. That is remarkable. That is amazing uh, that he did so. And he did so with poignancy and insight and, and pitiless uh, inventory of Black rituals of survival and Black struggles uh, for su- sustenance, and the attempt to remain human amidst the dehumanizing impulses of a dominantly supremacist and racist culture. So uh, celebrating uh, that work was, was a true pleasure, and what a remarkable life he lived.
1: In terms of celebrating these great works, do you have some concerns with our younger generations, those behind us, that they are not being exposed enough to these great geniuses. We got some young geniuses now they all love, and that's fine, but we got a whole centuries and centuries of folks, black folks, that some of our folks don't know about.
3: Yeah, you got to look back to move forward, and you got to recognize them, and it's true. Now, all old people say that. You ain't old, but I'm old. We always (laughs) you don't study the real one, boy. You missing out on the on the greats, uh, some of these young people have a real nose for who the greats are, mm-hmm. and they um, they respond to that. But you know, we've got to understand that it is true um, that you know we have extraordinary genius that people have overlooked, uh, been underappreciated, can't even understand the range of what they do. And think about it: even people we celebrate, like Little Richard, didn't really get his whole due, mm-hmm. right? Because of his, you know, his inventiveness, or a Chuck Berry is the greatest songwriter, arguably, in rock and roll. Uh, you know, Little Richard, one of the founders of the art form, uh, just to name one art form and two figures. And don't forget
1: the sisters, because I'm named after one, Sister Rosetta Tharpe. I mean, come, come on. I was
3: about to say with that with, that with that with that guitar <laughs> and that gospel being taken to a broader arena. Um, I mean, all of those pioneers and there's so many of them because black genius is dense and deep and has depth and is profound. And so there's no question that without sounding like an old school dude, like you young people don't study enough, God darn it. We got to get into the archives, dust them off and see (laughs) the extraordinary genius we possess in our own race.
1: Earlier today, I tweeted, you were going to be a guest on the program and brother, Mm -hmm. Joffrey replied, quote, it can't get any better. I've been hooked on Dr. Tyson, Dyson since I was about 13 and heard him preach at First Baptist Church in Hampton, Virginia, around 1993, and 1994. He still reaches wow. the youth to this day. R.I.P. Reverend Booth. When you hear something like that, what's your reaction to that type of reflection about you?
3: Well, so, so gracious. I'm so honored, you know, to do what I do, to have the privilege and the blessing to be able to say and speak as I want. Uh, yes, RIP, RIP Reverend Booth at First Baptist in Hampton. That was my mentor. Yeah. Uh, one of my mentors in the clergy, along with my pastor who were licensed and Ordain Me, the late Dr. Frederick George Sampson, now the late Dr. Reverend William Douglas Booth. Uh, amazing men of God, uh, of the cloth. And one of my vocations is preaching. And I got a couple of sermons in this book. Let's mm-hmm. remind people. I know sometimes my uh, y'all be forgetting I'm a preacher out here uh, <laughs> until I start rolling. With the cadences, but uh, I'm an ordained Baptist minister, and it certainly uh, is significant and central to my identity uh, as a Black man, as a Black figure, as a public intellectual. And it's always uh, humbling and deeply, um, you know, honoring uh, for me to be recalled uh, and to be seen in those lights. And I'm grateful uh, to those kinds of assessments of who I
1: am. Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America. It's the latest from Professor Michael Eric Dyson. Next time, let's kick this in person. Thank you so much, as always.
3: Always. The best hype woman in the world. All right. Thank you. You got it. (laughs)
1: And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. If you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm the Hype Woman. I'm Rose Scott. Sounds Like ATL is a
3: music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen
1: to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.